Welcome to the latest episode of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast's Halloween Edition. Alexander Case joins me again this week as we discuss Life Force from 1985. Hello. Hello. So this was one of the contenders in the tournament. It did not survive round one. Uh, round one, we had 382 movies, I believe, or 384 movies lined up for people to vote on, and only the top 120 made into the cut, plus eight wild cards. Of those first 380-some movies, this originally ranked out in position 266, so it did not make the 120 cut. It does seem to have sort of divided the viewers, though. When we look at the actual ratings, there's a few things that stand out. Uh, First of all, the most common rating was haven't seen it. So we should probably do a little more plot recap than we typically do, just to let people know what this is and what's going on. The next one I noticed was that the least popular vote was average. It was actually di- pretty divisive. Uh, we had about three or four times as many people voting at either above average or below average than average. So the above average to average votes were about 3 to 1, and the below average to average votes were about 3.5 to 1. So this seems to be a movie that people either get behind or want to pitch. Well, that's to a certain degree relates to, I suspect, um, which cut of the movie you've seen. Because this film has two different cuts with some significant adjustments to them in terms of how these stories explained and tone of the film. Um, there's the U.S. domestic cut, and then there's the international cut, which is closer to the director's original intent. Yeah, now the version I saw was only the director's cut. I've got the basically bare-bones DVD edition which is just shy of the two-hour runtime. It actually looks like it's the first release. I know there have been up-to-date Blu-ray releases, but I already had my copy and hadn't watched it, so I wasn't sure if it was worth upgrading. And I would vote, no, it's not worth upgrading. I got the uh, sh- the recent Shout Factory release, which has both the director's cut and the theatrical cut, um, in addition to audio commentary with Toby Hooper, who's the film's director, as well as the... Um, Guy, one of the guys who worked on the film's creature effects. Okay. All right. So, what are the big differences between the director's and the theatrical cuts? All right. And actually, well, before we get into the differences, maybe we should get into a general plot outline of what we're working with first, and then get into the differences. Mm, sure. The um, premise of the film is that the um, in the not too distant future, at the time the film was made. The, um, the, the European Space Agency and NASA do a international mission to go go to Halley's Comet, basically with an experimental um, drive system on this space on the space shuttle um, drive system called Nerva, which basically gives them constant thrust with minimal fuel usage or what have you, basically giving them an excuse to have gravity on the space shuttle set and allowing them to save some money there. Um, when they approach Halley's Comet and enter the um, ship, enter the um, coma of the comet, they discover a spacecraft inside. They do an EVA to investigate the spacecraft and find a bunch of dead bat-like creatures. And also, in three sort of crystalline stasis pods, three naked humanoids, two men and a woman. The crew retrieves them and a sample of one of the uh, one of the bat light a- bat aliens, and then heads back to Earth. On the way back, 
they completely lose, um, completely loses contact with the, um, Churchill, and they send up another shuttle, the Columbia, um, which makes contact discovers something has gone horribly wrong. Everyone on the crew is dead. The ship has been ravaged by fire. Um, and the only things that aren't damaged are the three, Chris, the uh, three stasis chambers. And they, they don't know what they are because the, the uh, records from the Churchill have also been destroyed in terms of their, um, sensor records and their recordings and that sort of thing. Um, so they bring them back and things start going really bad from there. Yeah, the the title of the novel it's based on, which I don't think either of us has read, is Space Vampires. And that's basically the idea is that these three in stasis tubes are kind of like vampires in their coffin, and they're on Earth, and they're starting to feed. Now, this ha- movie has its merits. Like I said, I don't think it has enough for me to warrant the upgrade, um, but could very well be a big difference between a theatrical and director's cut. Having only seen the director's cut, I mean, as much as I wasn't particularly engaged by the story, I can't point to any scenes that weren't needed for the story. So it'd be really hard to cut out the 16 or 17 minutes that makes the the difference in time without breaking some part of story logic. Yeah. The main changes that are made from... The, uh, made... Um, but actually, from this point on, this is where the changes start coming in between the two cuts. Um, there was one my moderate one at the beginning, where a lot of the exposition I just kind of gave about the Nerva and that sort of thing, and the mission, are given in a title card um, before the opening credits starts, and then we have the opening credits overlaid with the crew entering the ship, um, which kind of affects the... Um, tone to a certain degree when you have all the names popping up on screen because it's it breaks out of the immersion somewhat. Um, but after this, once we get back to Earth, that's where the biggest changes happen, where we have basically a lot of the discussion of the aliens as kind of being vampires or perhaps origins of the vampire legend. Um, a lot of that exposition is cut. A lot of exposition about characters talking about how the, the aliens had this sort of psychological hold on them was kind of cut, so that when we get some of this later with the only survivor of the mission, um, we... Um, it, it comes out of the blue with this character. because So what happens is the vampires are brought to London and kept at the European Space Research Center. And when they try to do an autopsy on the woman, who turns out to be the head vampire, um... She wakes up and completely drains the life out of one of the scientists. This also leads to one of the things that this film is noticeable, notable for in some circles is that the female vampire, who is played by Mathilda May in her first film role, spends a large chunk of the film naked. Um, and so after she drains the, the scientist, she walks out of the building and basically takes out anyone who gets in her way. At which point, there's even now a vampire on the loose in um, in England, and so we. After this, we get introduced to two new characters. We have um, Steve Rails back, who Blaine will get to talk about more later on in the X Files uh, retrospective. Yep. Um, he's not good with having experiences with aliens. Good experiences with aliens. Um, and we have. 
Peter Firth, who has an uncanny resemblance to Colin Baker in this, um, facial resemblance, or maybe just a hair, um, as Colonel Colin Kane, who is of the SAS, and who is basically sent to investigate this and find out what the hell's going on. And the two characters have a very interesting dichotomy in terms of how they react to things. Rails back, he basically ejects, ejected from the uh, Churchill after setting the place on fire. Um, and he's already been heavily mentally affected by the space vampire, by, by the space girl, as she's referred to in the credits. And he's, he, he's having a rough time, but he, he's fairly unhinged. Whereas Colonel Colin Kane is very British, I'm rolling with this. And slowly as the film goes on, it gets more and more out of his depth. He, he doesn't quite get as, lose it as much as Carlson does, but you can see a guy trying desperately to, gr- to hold on to what he knows as reality or sanity and rationality as, as things fall apart around him. Yeah, and they did a nice job with that. One of the big issues I had was with Steve Railsback's character. I understand he's under the influence of the space vampire, and a lot of his decisions aren't completely his. But a lot of this precipitates with him on the spacecraft coming back, recognizing the threat that these things pose. He was forced to destroy the radio against his will to prevent any warning from going back, as one example. So he sees the threat these things are, and how does he choose to deal with it? He's got a crew filled with humans. He's got a shuttle that has the best chance of getting them back to Earth in one piece. And he's got three things that are in stasis in self-contained pods on board. Now, he's got two options. He can open the bay and dump out the threat and get himself and the rest of his human crew back in one piece. Or he chooses option B, torch the place, hoping to kill them, even though they have no idea what these stasis things are. It turns out they're described more like force fields. He has no idea if he can burn through them, and ejecting in the escape pod when he's still several months away from Earth. Now, the escape pod does get him back in one piece, but I'm just trying to see what what logic brought him to that plan. Because I would think just open the cargo bay doors and dump the three out would be the best bet. You'd need, you need to at least have scenes showing that the aliens have more than Railsback's character under their control, and they're using them to defend themselves, to eliminate the simpler options before you go to the complex option. Yeah, I, I do kind of think, every time I've watched this movie, I kind of get the vibe of um, that for the events of the Churchill, there's a whole nother horror movie just waiting right there, just for the events on there. Um, I have read the book. I, I can imagine that with um, the sequence the sequence in the book, uh, Colin Wilson was trying to evoke the, the log of the alert from Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is the ship which carries Dracula to London, and which over the course of the voyage, Dracula slowly kills each member of the crew one by one. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that it, it kind of doesn't quite necessarily work here because we don't get that effective log in terms of the crew comes on, another finds another member dead, and another member dead one by one, as it, and as this wears on the crew. Um, and I mean, as is, I've read some Lovecraftian horror, so I kind of get to kind of put the pieces together in terms of what the vibe they're trying to go with for Railsback in terms of he's a man who's unhinged, he's not thinking clearly. Probably if he was thinking clearly, he would have spaced the aliens instead. Um, but because he's not, because he's losing his grasp on reality, um, that that's probably why I went for the torching option. Um, 
They do kind of do a good job of this early on when they're doing the EVA scene, where the moment the astronauts enter the stasis chamber, the room where the pods are, the camera flips 180 degrees. Um, and it kind of stays that way for much of this sequence. Uh, and they do other sort of similar camera tricks with canted angles and so Dutch angles and so forth whenever the characters are being mind-whammied by the space vampires. They do, and it's that's one of the things that worked about the film, I felt. There's other camera work that didn't work. When they were filming it, it was very clear that they were trying to make the movie look and feel larger than it is. So there are times when they're using fisheye lenses, not when there's characters being distorted or anything like that, but you know, just to try and make things look bigger than they are. They use them in the interior of the shuttle, they use them outside the buildings, and they don't really work because they're used so drastically with such an extreme effect. I mean, this is even beyond Casper Gutman and the Maltese Falcon. This is outright distortion where straight lines are very clearly curved that it just threw me off because it made it feel like they were overreaching. They should have just taken angles that, you know, instead of using a fisheye lens in front of the entire face of the building to make it look bigger, Use a normal lens, but let the building exceed the frame on one side. So when they're treating it like a building, the audience fills in mentally that there's, you know, another 30, 40 meters on that side of the building and not two, right? So that they believe, yes, this extends well past the camera, but it doesn't. I mean, this is a movie with high ideals, but it doesn't achieve them, and some of them seem like budget cuts. And you mentioned earlier that they were doing artificial gravity by having the constant thrust. And the issue I have with that, I mean, it's a great idea. It's a cheap and effective way to actually get your artificial gravity in space, especially on long voyages. But the thrust would simulate gravity in the opposite direction. So if you're being thrust forward, you feel gravity backwards, just like when you're riding an elevator. When the elevator accelerates upwards, you feel heavier because there's a, a greater interaction between yourself and the elevator floor. But when it's slowing down, you feel lighter. Here, the shuttle is shaped like the space shuttles that we know. We see clearly that the windows are in the front. When characters are seated, they're looking out those windows in the front, and the engines are on the back. Uh, but the Nerva engine is on the underside, which in and of itself has its own problems, because that's where the heat shield is. Yeah, but even if the Minerva engine's on the other side, if they're simulating it through acceleration, the craft is accelerating from the rear engines. That means the acceleration people feel, the artificial gravity they feel should be against the back wall of the rooms and not the floor. I, I, That's the way it's oriented uh, in space. I, 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 kind of, um, I looked at a few screenshots of this earlier, um, but they have, the way they do it, it still doesn't quite work right from how they have the perspective, but the engine is like on the underside of the shuttle, um, pointing straight down. Um, so it would, so the force-wise, you'd have, the, um, you'd have it towards the floor, although it still has its own problems where the shuttle is then not pointing precisely towards the, uh, not quite pointing right towards the uh, comet. Though they, they do kind of adjust work with this for the interior shots, um, where when characters are looking at the comet and the spaceship, they're looking through the, the windows and the ceiling and the roof of the shuttle. Um, I think it's kind of a situation where we have a discontinuity between the effects and the set design. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's what it is, because if you just... You're going to feel the gravity in the direction of the overall acceleration. This comes right down to Einstein's general theory of relativity about being unable to differentiate between being in an elevator accelerating through space and an elevator that's stationary on the Earth's surface. 
if you look at the exterior shots and the way the ship is accelerating, they don't match the way that the people are responding to gravity on the interior shots. As a guy with a physics background, that drives me up the wall. <laughs> they were almost there. They recognized that you need some source of artificial gravity. They recognized the cheapest and easiest way to provide it. And then whoever came up with that for the script didn't get that concept translated correctly between the way the set was designed and the way the outside effects were done. There's a massive disconnect there. Yeah. So, getting back to the space vampire ravaging on Earth. Um, so, the, the girl... Then start, then, we then learn she has the ability to sort of body swap. Um, we learned this through, um, Railsback's character Carlson being hypnotized. We learned that he has a residual psychic link with her. He manages to find out, um, the body she's currently in, and they manage to track her down to a psychiatric ho- hospital in Yorkshire, which is where we get another, um, luminary of science fiction film, who we'll be talking about much more later. Patrick Stewart entering the film in a role which almost steals the entire scene that he's in. Um, he pretty much does steal most of the scenes he's in. Um, he plays Dr. Armstrong, the head of the psychiatric hospital. Um, what happens is uh, Carlson and Kane come in, and they check out the girl who they last had her possess- um, who they last knew was possessed. And discover that um, that the space girl mind has left her body and jumped somewhere else. And the scene's kind of cre- scene is creepy um, and kind of pervy. Um, but then eventually, after the scene, they they do some little investigating and discover that the space girl is now in Doctor Armstrong's mind, and it leads to a great little interrogation scene. Um, where we have basically Dr. Armstrong, Patrick Stewart is Dr. Armstrong speaking for the space, speaking for the space girl and then kind of intercutting with the, um, space girl then being on this, um, basically restrained couch thing, um, while under the influence of, um, sodium pentothal and morph, and morphine, um, from the commentary, apparently Patrick Stewart and Mathilda May worked out how they're going to play this scene together so they would all hit the same notes. And Patrick Stewart coached Mathilda May a lot since this was her first acting role on screen. Previously, she had a background in ballet. Um, and the this, and this scene worked. It works really well. It's really tense um, and it has a really good sense of atmosphere to it. It does, and that's one of the things I will give this movie. Despite the budget constraints, despite some of the story logic issues, when they decide this scene will be creepy, this scene will be creepy. They manage to pull that off consistently from start to finish. Yeah, the, the film, it has a vibe sort of like, it reminds me a lot of the Hammer Horror films, um, in terms of its sort of gothic atmosphere, but it's a gothic science fiction atmosphere. Um, in the commentary tracks... They, they mention a lot of references to the Quatermass films, which we'll be talking about later in the turn, when we do podcasts about the tournament. Um, so, the, so, um, Carlson and Kane take the, um, take Dr. Um, Armstrong back to London along with, um, a, uh, home secretary or whatever who was with them on this, um, Sir Percy Heseltine, who's played by Aubrey Morris. Um, oh, I should probably also mention, 
If you watch a lot of British movies or British television here, you'll be recognizing a lot of actors in this. Um, Peter Firth has gone on to be on MI5, um, known in the UK as Spooks. Um, Frank Finlay, who I don't remember precisely what else he's been in, but I've recognized the heck out of him is in this. Uh, Arby Morris has been in a boatload of stuff. Um, you will recognize so many actors in this movie. Um, and anyway, so they take them back, take them back to, um, London, to London, um, and they discover that this was all a diversion by the space girl. Um, that in the meantime, um, the victims have reanimated, um, and have been preying on the people of London and then spreading out this vampirism like a extremely virulent virus. And we basically end up having a sort of mini zombie apocalypse going on in London. And this scene is, when we see the zombie apocalypse stuff, this is shot fairly well. Um, this is also where we get to another one of the differences with the, um, between the theatrical cut and the director's cut. Um, in the, in the theatrical cut, we actually start seeing some of this zombie apocalypse footage earlier, like before the characters have left London. Um, we learned about the, um, about how the, the sort of zombie virulence works with the sort of husks of the people who've been drained animating after two hours and trying to drain from someone. And if they don't drain, they fall into dust. Um, but otherwise, the, um, we know that, but we think it's contained. And only later to realize, no, it's, it's not as contained as we'd like, not contained at all. It's, it's, it's a surprise in the director's cut. In the theatrical cut, there's kind of a sense of like foreboding of, oh, we know what's going on. It's, it's lost. It's, slipped out, but there's no sense of surprise there when we come back and, oh my goodness, London is burning. Yeah, and I would I would think the director's cut would work better for that one, just because one of the issues that you can have when the audience knows about things the characters don't know, I mean, on the one hand, it can ramp up the tension because you know, oh, this hammer's going to drop. When are they going to notice the hammer's there? On the other hand, you need to have something very engaging and very convincing in terms of what's keeping these guys from finding out about that hammer that's about to drop. So it lets you ramp up the tension for a while. There's a limit to how long it can go. And I just suspect, you know, the earlier that's introduced in the theatrical cut, the harder it would be to pull it off without the audience getting impatient for the return and becoming disengaged from the story that the main characters are in anyway. Yeah, so... The um, so our our heroes return back and they discover that London that London is quarantined that um, ten Downing Streets basically kind of been heavily fed on. In fact, we have a great scene where the characters go in to meet the prime minister and brief him on what's going on. Um, they're asked to wait by a secretary, and the prime minister <clears throat> lures the um, asked secretary to go into, into private quarters, and then as Carlson and Kane kind of poke their head around the door. Just to see this, we see the lot, we see this light coming around the corner that indicates that he's feeding on her, and they immediately go, uh oh, and immediately just kind of turn around, walk out the door as, um, not as discreetly as they can. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and on his way out, we then see a bunch of other people kind of showing the signs of fakeness that implies that they've been fed on late recently too. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. It's, this is one of the few sort of zombie apocalypse sequences where you have a very effective justification for why it's up to just these two or up to the small group of characters you've been following to save the day. Right? They go for the big scale help from the professionals and realize the professionals are in on it. we got to get out of here. 
we're not going to get help from here. So that is one of the elements that worked about it. So it is a very mixed bag. There's some parts of it that work very well, and there's some parts of it that do not. Yeah, so the, so the, the final climax of this is they're taken, is Carlson and Kane are taken to a, to the military perimeter, and they learn that, look, if we don't stop these vampires within like a few hours, NATO's just gonna go, Frelet, we're gonna nuke London. We're just gonna nuke the site from orbit, it's the only way to be sure. And, and Carlson heads off on his own because he has an idea where the head vampire is, while uh, Kane heads back to the Space Research Center to meet up with Dr. Hans Falada, um, who has information on how to kill the vampires, and he um, retrieves an artifact that, which he has, which is the only way to kill the head vampire and her her brides, or her grooms, her vampire grooms, I guess. Um, and he, however, uh, Falada himself has also been turned, so he has to kill... Uh, so Kane has to kill Falada. At which point we get this great se- these great sequences of Carlson and Kane trying to make their way through this overrun London, and it's it's kind of clearly something the cheap. You can see the mat lines and that sort of thing where where we go from um, the location shooting and sets to mat paintings, but it still looks really great. As a, this is where the the sense of scope really works, I think. Uh, we finally come and we lead to confrontation. At St. Paul's Cathedral, this we get to like one of the other big line things, which I think were cut. It's short, but it's significant. Um, Kane comes to the front door, front, front steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, and one of the vampires is on there, and he's channeling the energy being brought in by the people of um, London who've been turned to the Space Girl, and uh, he sees Kane. He says, "Hey, you should just come to me. It'll be much more frightening, m- much less frightening that way." And it's kind of interesting, like, like, like yeah. I'm going to feed on you anyway. You're going to die. So if you just kind of give yourself in, it'll make it easier for all of us. And Kane's response is, no, I'm going to stab you in the uh, chest with the um, with the leaded iron stake, basically. And this is where we kind of learn the next aspect of sort of the, the horror, I, I guess, of this. The vampires are actually all the bat things. Although the male and female space vampires are, are really the, va- the bat things. And they've just been taking this human form to pass among humans more easily, which kind of leads a whole new kind of creepy element to the sort of sexual control that the space vampires have over their prey. Yeah, and there is that sequence where you get the bat thing, which helps tie into justifying why these are space vampires, right? There's always that part of the vampire mythos where they can become the bats, and we don't see that until the last moment here, or next to last moment while they deal with things inside. the Honestly, it's when they get into the cathedral. That is where the movie, it lost me in a lot of ways, and it's from one simple choice. As you mentioned earlier, Mathilda May spends pretty much the entire movie walking around naked. And one of the things I do give them credit for, if you're going to have a character walking around naked for pretty much the entire role in the movie, casting someone who looks like Mathilda May is a very good plan. That part they did well. The only time we see Mathilda May on screen wearing clothes is in the cathedral. And to me, this entire time, they're supposed to be built up as the the vampires. Towards the end, as you've already mentioned, they start to get more in common with zombies. The bats come in. But one of the other big pieces of vampire mythos and vampire lore is the aversion to holy ground. And yet they're setting themselves up with their home base in the cathedral. And when you get in there, this is the first time Mathilde May is wearing clothes, and it's a plain white dress in a cathedral. And I, I don't see any reason for the character to have modesty at this point. I mean, if anything, she wants to continue walking around naked because that helps her control people. 
So I'm wondering, why is she all of a sudden wearing clothing? I think that has to be some sort of artistic decision, and they're trying to send some sort of message. But the rest of the movie, aside from the points where they're trying to creep you out, it doesn't work to the level that I don't understand what message they're trying to send by dressing her in white. I mean, this character's not virginal. She's not pure. She's not Eve. She's not Mary. Right? It's just, I mean, where are these guys coming from? Are they now saying vampires are science fiction creatures, in which case... Why the symbolism? Why the dress? Are they religious creatures? In which case, why have they sort of changed allegiance? So where's the aversion to the holy symbols coming from? Like, is it a message that you know, about science killing religion? Because they turn them into sci-fi creatures and they take her out. If that's the case, there's no precedent for that message anywhere else in the film. It's just as soon as the dress was there, they had to be trying to send some message, and I, for the life of me, can't figure out what message they're trying to send. Yeah, and, and it just doesn't help by the fact that the, uh, she's not wearing the dress for very long because as soon as Steve as soon as Steve Railsback comes in she's basically within like a few minutes or whatever maybe maybe a minute like a few seconds she's basically naked again and so is he um and basically happens is the is um Kane comes in there's this like hole in the floor with the conduit channeling energy up um Kane gets Carlson's attention and he's um, Kane throws down the um, uh, leaded iron lance stake thing to him, and he stakes himself and the space girl, at which point they are like both kind of routed up to the alien ship, which then, n- now visibly more alive, glowing with light and that sort of thing, returns to Halley's Comet with the implication that all that our heroes really did was not so much beat the aliens as much as kind of like drive them off for now and they'll be back the next time Halley's Comet comes around. Yeah, it does give that impression. And even to that degree, they're, they're treating this whole vampirism as a kind of infection and something that can go. So one thing I'm not clear on is what's going to happen to all the people that they had enthralled anyway? Do these creatures have enough power to be manipulating on that scale? In which case... Well, why is there, are they shutting down and giving up? They obviously have a lot of power. Or are these things still going to be functioning? Because they are working independently, and now they still have cleanup to do, and they still have this sort of vampirism disease to deal with. The impression I got, uh, unfortunately, again, this isn't clear. This might be clear in the book, is that once that once the uh, space girl is staked and everyone and they withdraw, um, that basically all the the ghouls or what have you are going to kind of just kind of drop dead or dust. Um, in what would, it probably would be a grotesque display if they had the budget to show it, but mm-hmm. they, I guess, didn't have the budget to show it. Yeah. And I'd say that, to me, that probably sums up the movie as a whole. They've got good aspirations. They've got ideas with a lot of potential, but for reasons that are primarily budgetary and somewhat on a competence level, a lot of these ideas do not make it onto screen. So some of the holes that are there, I think, are kind of important holes. I mean, there are some things that work very well. I mean, we have a little bit of an alien vibe, which is not surprising, considering Dan O'Bannon's involved again. And on top of that alien vibe, as you said, if you watch a lot of UK stuff, you'll recognize most of the cast. If you're not watching stuff in the UK and you catch this for the first time in the US, you're probably not going to recognize anybody. So again, you get that same... Well, nobody here is safe. 
kind of vibe that we got off Alien and from a lot of the horror movies afterwards. You you can't predict who's going to survive and who's not based solely on the casting. Henry Mancini also did a great job on the score, as he so often did. I mean, he is, even though this is towards the end of his career, and it's not one of the more notable songs from his career, he's never let us down completely in anything I've seen him do. The only person I've ever heard express any sort of dissatisfaction with Mancini was Alfred Hitchcock, who fired him and replaced him with John Williams in one of his last films. So there is a lot of potential here. Uh, this is a movie where, you know, if they chose to remake it as is today, they could do it very well. I think the closest thing we've had to a remake is that this, to me, feels in large part like a spiritual predecessor to Species, which could be part of the reason MGM got involved. This was originally a Karelko film. Karelko went belly up. MGM bought the distribution rights, and they were the ones that produced Species 10 years later. So if you've seen Species, you get a feel for what this is. We have an alien threat in the form of a basically a gorgeous naked woman that can escalate and take out the planet if our core team of experts can't take it down. It's a very rudimentary parallel, but it's similar in terms of tone and in many ways in terms of quality of execution because what they were focusing on were the creep-out scenes and the show gorgeous women naked scenes more so than let's move the story forward scenes. Um, one other significant change, you mentioned Henry Mancini's score, um, the other really noticeable change from the from the uh, director's cut to the theatrical cut is basically Henry Mancini's score got chopped up and a lot of it got cut and was replaced by rescoring by Michael Kamen. And Michael Kamen's a good direct, a good composer. I've enjoyed some of his music he did for the X Men movies. Um, I thought his score he did for uh, License to Kill was pretty good, um, but it's it's rough. You, you can tell the, the shifts where from where Henry Mancini's scoring and where Michael came in is scoring, and it's jarring. Um, came in tries to play up more of the um, sort of atmospheric horror type of tone, where um, Mancini's score is a bit more not to say bombastic, but it's more yeah, it's bigger, more of a space adventure, yeah. And yeah, he's bringing in the, the size. Part of it is given where Henry Mancini was and where Michael Kamen was at those points in their careers. It wouldn't surprise me if Henry Mancini just had a bigger orchestra to work with. And if you have two different orchestras being mixed together, unless they're very comparable in terms of size and composition, it's going to stand out no matter how good the composer is. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple other interesting little casting notes <clears throat> as far as for who we got and who we didn't get. Um, so, uh, Dr. Falada was originally meant to be played by, um, Klaus Kinski, who, having seen him in, um, in Creature, I don't know if he'd work, because Falada is a, a very pro- sort of professional role. He's a very, he, he's there to kind of provide a lot of very useful exposition. Um, but when we need to be creepy, it's supposed to come out of the blue. Um, but Klaus Kinski, having seen him in Creature, like, his first note is creepy and kind of crazy, and then everything else comes secondary to that. And I don't think the character would work as well if he, if he was already come across as a slightly deranged. Um, also, your who else? Um, Kane was originally offered to Anthony Hopkins, who turned it down. That would have been interesting. Um, 
John Gielgud was originally ca- um, cast for Dr. Armstrong, but got replaced by Patrick Stewart. Um, and also Billy Idol was originally considered <clears throat> excuse me, to play one of the uh, male vampires, as Toby Hooper had worked with him on the video for uh, Dancing With Myself. But due to scheduling conflicts, he wasn't able to make it, and I believe that they replaced him with Mick Jagger's brother, Chris, for one of the vampires. Yeah, that's entirely possible. It does clearly have the same casting agent as Dune from the previous year. There's between Billy Idol, Patrick Stewart, um, they even spoke to John Rice Davies at one point. He was mistakenly listed as, in the film's PR as being part of the film, even though he wasn't. So they, they were drawing from the same talent, and that much is clear. Now, when we get to the Dune podcast, we'll discuss whether or not you want to draw heavily on that talent pool. Yeah, that's that's one for another day. So, so the the actors can do their jobs, and they can do their jobs well. I mean, as you said, Steve Railsback is still remembered for his X-Files guest spot. He was in two episodes in 1994, and yet you know, I've seen people in video stores who recognize him. I remember, you know, ten years later, the X-Files have been off the air for two years. Somebody picked up another movie that he was in that had his his picture on the cover, turned to their buddy and said, they drilled holes in his damn teeth. <laughs> there are some things that last for years. Patrick Stewart, at this point, was still pre-Star Trek Next Generation. Right. As you were saying, Peter Firth has had a, a healthy career, but most of it is after this. Uh, probably the people with the most established careers involved in this film before it came out were Toby Hooper, the director you've already mentioned, Dan O'Bannon as the co-writer, and Henry Mancini as the original composer. A lot of the rest of these, even though they're recognizable, are recognizable in a before-they-were-stars kind of way. So there was... Like I said, they had a strong talent pool. They had a strong ideas, or a strong set of ideas. I just think they had the wrong emphasis when they were putting this together. So I was one of the people who originally voted this as haven't seen it when I was casting my votes in the tournament. And yeah, all the Bureau 42 writers and authors did get a chance to to cast their votes as well, along with the readers. Equal weighting with any given reader. Um, If I were to rate it now, I probably would put it as below average, because I just think the parts that didn't work outweighed the parts that did. Hmm. I would have been voting now. I I forget what I voted before. I probably would put it as average. It's what the, one of the things they mentioned in the commentary again is they mentioned the they made comparisons to the Hammer some of the Hammer science fiction films like Quartermass and that sort of thing and it feels a lot like some of the Hammer horror films. Some of the not all the Hammer horror films are great. I mean, the Satanic Rites of Dracula goes for about like half the movie with no Dracula, but it still has it, its moments of. I mean, the Hammer films always had a certain degree of even if their writing was subpar or the directing was subpar, they could get good performances out of good actors. Um, and here, even though we have problems with where the right, where some of the pacing doesn't work well, it's on the shoot, then the direction doesn't work well, m- the majority of the actors we have in this are good actors, and they do a really good job. And and a, if you get a, bu- a critical mass of good actors working together and doing good performances, they can compensate for a lot in terms of or visual effects, poor direction, and that sort of thing. And that is certainly true, but they can only compensate so much. And for me, a lot of what I love about films comes right down to the script level. 
I mean, I'm a very auditory person in general as, you know, in terms of a learner. That's the way I teach when I teach my students. It's, and to me, you need to have the story logic there. You need to have the structure. You need to make sure all the pieces fit. And a lot of that is my own tastes. You look at my three all-time favorite directors. I found out even after I was watching their movies and loving them, all three of them have engineering backgrounds. Right? That's Alfred Hitchcock, Fritz Long, and Stanley Kubrick. All ended up going to engineering schools and actually think all mechanical engineering on top of that. And there's things here that just don't work. Like, I mean, I appreciate the homage to Bram Stoker's Dracula with the ship coming through and the crew being picked off one by one and they don't know what's going on. That works really well on Dracula, but Dracula has one massive difference between what was going on on that ship with the captain's log and what happens here in that in Dracula, they have no idea what's killing the crew. In Life Force, they know, right? This wasn't Dracula was snuck on board inside some other crate and they don't know that there's something living in the cargo hold. You know, they're, the vampires they have here are in transparent containers and they loaded them. They, they know exactly what's causing the problem here. There's just a couple of points where characters make key decisions because if they made intelligible and in-character decisions, then you wouldn't have a story. Instead, they make poor decisions, and yeah, you can argue that, well, he was already under the Space Girl's influence, and that's why he just put himself in the ejection pod, and that's why he gutted the ship in a manner that they could have actually survived, and this is all her manipulation from the start. But if she's got that level of a hold on him, how is he able to break it at the end, right? They've got the sort of the peak of their control should be in those last few minutes, and he sacrifices himself when he takes her out. There's just, a lot of it is inconsistent in terms of the level of hold she has for him, the power, the way it works. As you said, we find out she can jump mines, so her mind is going to other bodies to get everything put together. But meanwhile, back in London, her body's been up and around and has been orchestrating this whole outbreak, and it's been making things worse, and they are at the center, so there is some sort of connection there. So how much remote control does she have? Was she controlling people back in London when she was jumping out of the other bodies? It's I understand that when you're dealing with monsters, there are fantasy elements, there's things that can't be explained completely. I just need to have some attempt, or even, even... There's an episode of Stargate when they run into a black hole, and it doesn't do what black holes are supposed to do, because that would sort of break the story they were telling. But at the very least, they had a throwaway line from Amanda Tapping's character to say, I don't understand why we're not seeing these phenomena as well. And just acknowledging, these should be there, they're not. And they throw it, well, maybe the Stargate is screening them somehow, but at least they're throwing out saying, I don't get how this works. And showing people who should have noticed and should have been confused by it, have noticed and they are confused by it. And the story can still, it's something like that I think is lacking here. I, I, I do agree. There is, there is a certain benefit where there is a, a a value to, even if you cannot going to go in-depth explanation, to give us the throwaway line or something to say, we don't have an explanation, but the characters understand how, uh, characters understand that why this can't be explained or that sort of thing. Um, and then just kind of move on from there. Yeah. yeah even if just the science, scientists saying, I don't know how this works, we don't have time to figure out how it works, we got to stop them now. Yeah. Right. Having yeah, that's. I just felt we need a little bit more than what we got. And it, it's one of those ones that it wouldn't take much to tip the scales, because there are elements that work really, really well. The ones that don't work well, for me, just kind of spoil the whole thing. So, I personally would not recommend this film. How about you? Um, I'd say it, it's alright. I'm, I mean, I, I got the, um, part of the reason why I, why I got the, 
the Blu-ray release of this was to a certain degree because I hadn't seen the the theatrical cut and I really wanted to do a comparison of the two. Um, and honestly, it's kind of thing where I like rent it. Um, whether it's like if it goes shows up on Netflix Instant again, um, watch it there, or if they have the if they have it for rental on Amazon Instant or something like that, rent it that way. But unless you like really dig it or you want to like just binge on the special features, this is a film that wouldn't hurt to skip. Um, another thing is, if, yeah. is if you're a fan of like the Hammer Horror kind of thing, if you're a fan of Hammer Horror films, you might get some appreciation out of this. Um, but that's that's pretty much the main stuff there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's if you are very interested. Find it like Alex is saying. Something that's part of a membership you're already paying for or finding it cheap. Don't invest a lot in the fancy editions unless you've already seen it and you already know you like it. That's, I think that's everything I had to say about Life Force. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, that pretty much covers everything which I had to say as well. Oh, one other little interesting tidbit. The EVA sequence, um, they used the flight rip, flight rig from Superman for the EVA sequences. So, just another callback to other move, another bunch of movies on the list and the silver screen Superman. Anyway, that wraps up our coverage of Life Force. So join us again next week when we do the final piece in this year's Halloween series of podcasts dealing with John Carpenter's Thing. All right, so, Alex, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to next time.